Welcome, I'm Homa Gupta. And I'm Danielle Saleh. And this is Environment in Context, a podcast produced by the editors of the Jadalia Environment page. Today, we will be discussing the ecological imaginaries of water and climate change in Dubai. We are speaking with Nadia Christidi, who is a PhD candidate in History, Anthropology, Science and Technology at MIT. Welcome, Nadia, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, Huma. It's great to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. And thanks, Danya. It's wonderful to meet you. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Can we begin with talking about this term, ecological imaginaries? What does it mean to you? And what does it mean specifically in the historical context of the United Arab Emirates and in relation to water? Yeah, sure. Uh, so in, by environmental imaginaries, I mean the ways in which we imagine or think about or represent the environment. And in my view, these ways or these imaginaries are conditioned by not just technical forces, but also social and political ones. And these imaginaries, they have real world impacts. So when we talk about environmental imaginaries, oftentimes in relation to the Middle East, a lot of the conversations within that are indebted to the work of Diana Davis. And Diana Davis explored a particular type of environmental imaginary. It's one that she calls environmental orientalism. And it kind of like builds on Edward Said's idea of environmentalism and incorporates that within kind of environmental views. And so for Diana Davis and for this idea of environmental orientalism, there's this idea that imaginations of the landscape in the Middle East have been imbued with like European representations of it, colonial representations of it, that view this environment as being degraded, desolate, unproductive desert. And in many cases, there's this view as well that this desert is not necessarily the natural state of that environment, but is a product of local mismanagement. This imaginary has political effects. Uh, it served to strengthen the European colonial administration and European expert management. And it also had other material effects, including a tendency to overuse water in order to produce what was imagined to be a more productive environment or a more productive agriculture. And Diana Davis argues as well that in post-colonial times, this environmental imaginary works in similar ways as it did in colonial times, only it's a different set of actors that kind of propagate it. So these are local authorities, international NGOs through you know, discourses of development, for example. So I think this is a really interesting perspective and one that definitely applies in many aspects to the Gulf. But I also think that there are other, other factors sorry, in play that complicate attitudes towards the environment, both in the past and in the present more specifically. And these kind of other orientations or other factors complicate this totalizing or this whole scale vision of an environmental imaginary of environmental orientalism. These tendencies can sit beside it, can coexist with it, can also you know, complicate and clash with it. The most famous example that's talked about when we talk about the oriental environmental imaginary is you know, how, for example, lots of cities in the Gulf, including Dubai, have you know, placed a lot of emphasis on greening the desert, right? And you have all these parks and golf courses that are green in an environment that wasn't necessarily naturally green. And so um, in some cases, the environmental imaginary is used to explain this. And I think that there's definitely some of that, but there's also, you know, concern, other concerns at play, including like the desire to transform Dubai into, into a tourism hub or to produce microclimates uh, like shade, 
microclimates and shade, sorry. Uh, so it's a bit more complicated than just that. That's one thing I would say. And then the other thing I would say is that there's also this really interesting, I think, counter trend or counter environmental imaginary that's working. This I would take from the work of Ahmed Kenna. So Ahmed Kenna writes about what he calls Orientalism in reverse. And even though he's not using it to talk about environmental management or environmental attitudes or environmental imaginaries, he's using this to kind of characterize Dubai as a whole or images of Dubai as a whole. Uh, I would definitely say that we could extend his idea of Orientalism in reverse to questions of environmental management in Dubai. So this idea of Orientalism in reverse is basically this idea that somehow now Dubai is pictured as hypermodern, as forward-looking, as representative of the future. I think you can see this in many different examples. So the first one I'd say, you know, both internationally and locally. So the first one I'd say is like there's a Business Insider article that I stumbled on in my research that is titled, If You Ever Wondered What Life Will Be Like When Climate Change Makes the Outside Unlivable, Dubai Can Give You a Good Idea. And this sits alongside attempts by policymakers in Dubai to aggressively shift to renewables, to make Dubai associated with greenness, to make desalination more sustainable. So I recognize that like this article and these, these efforts, maybe they rest on different impetuses. Like in one case, in the case of the article, there is still this like, not, you know, there is still this idea of this degraded environment in Dubai and in the UAE. And uh, even if it's, there's this emphasis on cutting edge technologies that are being developed locally to make it more habitable, right? But uh, in, the, in the other, in this idea of making Dubai associated with greenness and with sustainability, I'd say, you know, there's less of that environmental imaginary maybe at play. But the important thing, I guess, in all of these ideas is, or all of these different configurations is that there is this focus on futurity that Kenna talks about in his idea of Orientalism in reverse. So in my work, I'm specifically interested in environmental imaginaries that relate to water and that affect water use and water management. And more specifically, I'm interested in how place-specific ideas about and experiences with climate change are affecting water management practices. So one of my inspirations for this is the work of anthropologist Candace Callison, who wrote a book called How Climate Change Comes to Matter. And in that book, Callison describes climate change as a form of life. And she explores, she talks about and explores the vernaculars through which climate change is understood and spoken about in different places and among different communities, from journalists to business people to Native Americans. And so I became really struck by this idea that climate change could be could mean completely different things, could be talked about in completely different ways. You know, in extending that to think about how climate change's impact on water could mean such different things and you know, or such culturally specific things among different actors in different places. I guess like to give to maybe take this conversation from somewhere where it's more maybe abstract to somewhere where it's more concrete. I thought I'd share a couple of these environmental imaginaries and climate change imaginaries as I've encountered them in Dubai and in the UAE. So the first one I'd say is, I think it's like the most fascinating one. So Dubai relies really heavily on um, potable, for its water, potable water on desalination, which is something that we'll be getting into later on. But but this mode of water production or this particular way of producing water has generated a specific image 
that's become associated with it. And that image is the image of the factory and of factory production. And interestingly, like I was not expecting to find this at all, but this image of the factory kept coming up in conversations and in various ways. So I'll give you two examples. In one conversation with a water planner at the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority, which is Dubai's main utility, which is Dubai's utility, sorry. Um, I spoke to a planner who made a distinction between the water work that they were doing and the water work being done at other utilities. And what he told me was basically that they actually produce rather than like the, the, the distinction was because they produce their water rather than source it. And that in this way, like and in their work, water is a commodity rather than a natural resource. And that this is what makes the nature of their work in water more in line with how power or electricity are generally dealt with and viewed in other places. And then he talked about this factory setting. He meant it was a factory in the sense that they had to kind of anticipate what demand would be and um, kind of aim their production towards meeting that demand. For him, this was a completely different way of thinking about water. So that's one case in which this came up. And then in another conversation with a desalination expert at MIT, the factory image came up again, but this time to explain how artificial, like the artificial nature of water production and desalination, the idea that it was being produced in a factory um, could help explain some of the anxieties that exist around desalination as a source of water supply. So I became really interested in this factory image and in what in what kinds of implications it had. So like, what can it tell us about how desalination functions differently in reality and imaginatively from other ways of sourcing water? And then what effects or implications does this have? There's a few other imaginaries that I maybe want to talk about, but maybe more briefly. A second one I think is like, there's this imaginary of absolute scarcity. And this is sometimes accompanied with the, with a, a view or a narrative of the UAE's ancestral populations as being resourceful, as having been able to survive in, in an environment marked by extreme scarcity through their ingenuity. And this gets mobilized in museum exhibits and statements and official statements and within kind of present day sustainability discourses in interesting ways. And it kind of connects to a third imaginary, I'd say, and that imaginary is kind of pictures the UAE as an extreme environment. So if that kind of if the second imaginary I talked about relates to, you know, this projection of certain ideas of scarcity onto the past and resourcefulness onto the past, then this third imaginary that I'm not going to talk about, which is the UAE as an extreme environment, that kind of is a projection of some of these views into the future, right? So the UAE is figured as this ideal site for studying what climate change impacts might look like in other places in the future. Right? The UAE is the future now. It also helps constitute it as a test bed for developing new technologies and solutions. So concretely, the examples of this are, for example, I went to a conference about environmental challenges in the Arabian Gulf, and the Arabian Gulf was talked about as one of the hottest bodies of water on Earth. It was talked about as a great place to study coral bleaching uh, and to understand what coral bleaching might look like in other seas soon. Right. In another case, I know that I heard from someone at Mustad that engineers are often really interested in testing their technologies, their desalination technologies in the UAE because of the extreme climatological conditions, whether that's, you know, the salinity of the Gulf or 
the, the, Gulf, the Arabian Gulf as a sea, the temperature of its water or the temperatures in general of the surrounding atmosphere, right? So they're interested in testing their equipment there because if it can succeed there, then it can succeed anywhere. So this is kind of leverage, I think this kind of futurity, right, because of the extremeness of the environment, I think, is leveraged a little bit in some narratives that frame, uh, you know, official narratives within the UAE that frame climate change as an opportunity. And I think they dovetail kind of with some policy orientations that are really working to turn the UAE and Dubai into an innovation hub and a hub for like, you know, a knowledge economy. And then finally, there's this idea of the infinity of water that and uh, there's and, and two imaginaries that I'd say relate to that. So there's an anthropologist called Gokshe Gunel who talks about an infinity of water, which is this ability to manufacture, produce, consume, you know, excessive amounts of water and how kind of following this environmental imaginary logic, the ability of the state to do that becomes kind of a symbol of you know, successful hydrological hydraulic management, but also like su successful governance, modernization, development, et cetera. So I'd say like there's something about that infiniteness that needs to be addressed. And I think that part of that is like that infiniteness is quite significant in its relationship to non-renewables. So I had a really interesting conversation with an actor in the sphere of renewable energy who talked about how non-renewables have a logic of scarcity, whereas renewables have a logic of abundance. So I think this logic of abundance of non-renewables kind of relates a little bit to this infiniteness that's associated with uh, desalination. And then finally, there's another aspect within this infiniteness, and that relates to this idea of free water. So the UAE is, so water is often, or water production and water are often talked about as being free, because in Dubai, like many places in the UAE, like many places in the Gulf, water is often co-produced with power. So the byproduct of power production, which is heat, is used as an input in desalination. And so through that coupling, it's kind of thought about it as being as not as being free somehow, uh, which is a technically complicated question and not as clear as it may seem. But there's definitely this idea of freeness, I think, that kind of works within that infinity of water imaginary. Thank you, Nadia. That was such a brilliant exposition of the term ecological imaginaries. I mean, I was particularly struck by kind of three themes in what you were saying. I mean, first, the way in which water kind of is commodified and produced through the metaphor or the image of the factory where water is literally being produced, you know. Second, with how you were talking about the futurity of Dubai as this kind of test hotspot for how technologies can be developed to deal with the problem of water scarcity in the world and how this image of the future now in Dubai is driving the way in which people are thinking about these so-called solutions to water scarcity. And third, I think, which is where I'd like to pick up, is when you bring up someone like Gokju Gunel's work is kind of the anthropological approach to understanding the infinite imaginary of water as this free resource that can never be extinguished because of the ways in which water is co-produced with power. I think that's brilliant. And 
I think that what you've said earlier about these, the ways in which ecological imaginaries of water function is why we perhaps think of these topics like water management and climate change as the purview of environmental scientists, engineers, economists, security analysts, or policymakers who are trying to find best practices and solutions to what is framed today as the crisis of water. However, in the context of the Gulf, as you've already mentioned, there are now anthropologists like yourself and like Okja Gunnell and even historians like Michael Christopher Lowe, who have been working on the historical emergence and contemporary usage of techno-social solutions to water scarcity. And I think this is fascinating. But I was wondering if you could kind of more specifically speak about how an anthropological approach helps us understand the political practices and economic rationalities of water governance. And why did you feel that it was important to focus on this particular topic in this moment? And uh, in thank you, Uma. That's a great question. So one important thing to note is that this focus on Dubai or this study of Dubai's water management and water planning is actually part of a larger research project that looks at the future of water in three cities. And I think just, I mean, generally water in urban environments is, I think, one of the biggest questions we're going to grapple with in the 21st century because of increasing populations and because of challenges that are going to be brought about by climate change. And I think that it's often talked about in a kind of purely technological or technical, with a purely technological or technical focus. And like all things technological and scientific, I strongly believe that there are elements of water management, uh, technologies, science, et cetera, that are, can only be understood really like from, with an understanding of the social, political, and economic context. So the differences between the different contexts that I study which are Dubai, Los Angeles, and Cape Town. Those are the three cities that my research focuses on. So the differences between them, I don't think can be explained only by environmental differences or by technological differences. I think kind of, you know, like the nature of governance, like how centralized or decentralized it is, or whether or not it's, you know, election-based, like plays a role in some of this, I think. You know, other things like uh, how thoroughly like certain economic rationalities, you know, like market-based logics have penetrated into governance, right? I think also plays a big part in this. Like, I think, the you know, there's a, there's a difference in each of these places in the role that the market is imagined to have in disciplining user behavior or driving innovation or, you know, like producing solutions. I think historical and contemporary social relations are significant in LA between urban and rural communities. In Cape Town, like the history of apartheid is super important uh, when we're talking about water infrastructures and when we're thinking about them beyond the technological or technical. And then, you know, like there's also culturally specific imaginaries of the past like the ones I mentioned, or what might be possible in the future, right? And how these get mobilized in conversations. I think what's imagined as the future in somewhere like Dubai is very different from what's imagined as the future in somewhere like, you know, Cape Town or Los Angeles. So in Dubai, oftentimes, climate change is talked about as an opportunity. And this is explained by, you know, the Dubai government's embrace of strategic foresight, which is kind of this idea that if we can project the future and develop policies in the present to put us on the track towards that future, then we can somehow guarantee our 
position on the cutting edge at a later time. So I think, yeah, cultural imaginaries of, you know, what's possible in the future differ from place to place. So all of these questions come into play. And, you know, I, I think that context specific social, political, economic and cultural factors definitely influence how water is being thought about and approached and how kind of these approaches are being translated into interventions in the world. So there's many kind of historians and anthropologists who look at infrastructures in, you know, with a social eye. In their work, they treat infrastructures as like registers of aspiration, forms of self-representation, embodiments of imagined futures, products of political agendas or ideologies. And there's for example, one really prominent strand within historical literature that you know studies the place of infrastructures in nation-building projects in the third world in the post-colonial era and how infrastructures came to legitimize post-colonial regimes and you know represent somehow modernization. Toby Craig Jones actually goes even further back in his work and has written about how central not just oil but water and its provision were for the establishment and rise of the Al Saud family in the early 20th century in Saudi Arabia. Some anthropological work takes this up as well, so more in the present and considers, you know, the role of infrastructures in legitimizing state power and in representing development. I think what's really interesting for me though, or some of the questions that I try to tease out is what do these different manifestations of legitimization, you know, there's the, there are these different, so infrastructures are emerging as manifestations of legitimization, manifestations of ideology, but they kind of, that legitimization works differently in different places, looks differently in different places and draws on different imagery. And I think I'm quite interested in how you know, this legitimization functions from place to place and from time to time. And I'll just like talk about this in a more broad sense. So I think, you know, like in some cases, it's thought that this, that the post-colonial era, that in the post-colonial era kind of, or even in the present, that development has come to replace modernization and that they're kind of working in the same way and they kind of function similarly somehow. And I think, but I think there's some interesting developments and nuances. So, you know, sustain the emergence of sustainability in the 1970s, the, the more recent emphasis on resilience. I think that impacts, you know, like kind of how legitimization is functioning and what purpose it's serving for the government politically and economically in different places. And, and I think that that's, that can help us understand why sustainability sustainability looks differently in somewhere like Dubai versus LA versus Cape Town. And just a couple of other notes on this, like I think a lot of existing anthropological work takes a bottom-up approach and considers how the meanings behind infrastructures or the ways that they're used kind of get mediated by various social actors other than the engineers and politicians that build them and are shaped by various social factors. So one example of this is the work of Nikki Lanand, who explores how water infrastructures in Mumbai, who explores water infrastructures in Mumbai and kind of sheds light on how social relations shapes, shape the ways in which these infrastructures are navigated and then the form that they end up taking. I don't really take a bottom-up up approach as much. I take a top-down approach. And I think that's partly indebted to my grounding in science and technology studies. So I'm studying what water managers, planners, and designers are doing uh, as they're develop and thinking as they're developing engineering solutions. And then I would say like just, the, you know, in terms of 
choosing a, a multi-sided ethnography or like deciding to look at multiple contexts instead of one context, I think it grew out of a recognition that that these actors that I was talking to, mainly like water managers, you know, climate scientists, urban planners, like functioned as part of a larger global community or global field, right? That had a shared intellectual history and common ideas about what best management practices look like and shared concerns. But then again, like by focusing on each of these sites in their own rights, I came to recognize and pay attention to how, you know, these actors were actually working in very different contexts and with different sets of givens. And then how these ideas that, you know, are quote unquote global get somehow translated and readapted in the process in the different contexts. And maybe I'll just give really quick kind of one example of that before we can maybe move on. So I don't dwell on this too much, but I'd say like, one of the big kind of trends within water management is what's called an integrated uh, resources approach or integrated water management approach. And this entails treating all sources of water from recycled water, groundwater, stormwater as constituting one water supply, and then kind of trying to manage a city's water supply portfolio more holistically. Uh, this has its roots in the 1990s-ish and has become you know, more ubiquitous and widespread since, but it's a huge shift from how things were done previously, uh, which was much more piecemeal. And today we're seeing a lot of cities trying to figure out how to bring these different pieces of water management together. And um, that's the case in all three cities I look at. There's a concern with this question, but then there's significant differences. So somewhere like LA, which is very decentralized administratively in general, and when it comes to water in specific, has a completely different experience with this than somewhere like Dubai that's much more centralized. So again, then we see this approach of integrated water management that is this global traveling practice that's being adapted in the process. And I think that that adaptation is quite significant because it shows us, you know, like how all these social, political, economic, and cultural factors are actually, you know, like it shows us them in the works somehow. Thank you, Nadia. Um, that was a really excellent overview of what anthropology and just generally like critical social sciences and humanities can really offer for the study of these technological systems um, in relation to the environment. So I just want to turn now to specifically to desalination, which you mentioned earlier, um, and also in a brief about your research that you shared with us, you mentioned a Museum of the Future exhibition in Dubai on climate change reimagined, which envisions this biodesalination plant in the year 2050. We were really fascinated by your description of this imagined plant, specifically how it took inspiration from nature and how it was designed to re resemble a genetically engineered cross between a desalinating mangrove root and an absorbent jellyfish. We'd love to hear you talk about First, about the intense preoccupation with desalination in the Emirates and the historical context of why it has become so central as a solution to water scarcity today and in the future. But first, tell us what is desalination exactly? First, I just want to actually start off by addressing this bioengineered or genetically engineered cross in this exhibition. And I just want to say that I, I don't like it was actually one of the things that attracted me to Dubai and that attracted me to studying the question of the future of water in general. And when I first started off this project, I hadn't actually 
known what was so significant about this. Like I thought, okay, there's a general tendency within science right now to develop biotechnical you know, solutions, synthetic biology, et cetera. Uh, there's a general tendency towards nature-based solutions, right? And so that's kind of the way in which I understood it. And I think it took like digging a while longer and understanding the kind of the that that imaginary of the factory that I talked to you about in relation to desalination for me to really understand what this somehow naturalization of desalination was doing in my mind at least. So that's just a little aside. And then just to go back to your question about desalination and how it kind of develops over time within Dubai and the UAE. So desalination is a process where salty water, it's usually seawater, but sometimes it can also be salty groundwater, is converted to fresh water uh, by removing salts and minerals. As an industrial technology, as a general technology or a way of creating fresh water, it's been around for a really long time as an industrial technology probably from around the 19th century, but it's really been applied through large scale factories of water production, basically only in the post-World War II era and mainly in the Arabian Gulf. And the prevalence of this technology in the Gulf is explained by a couple of factors. One of them is the Gulf's absolute water scarcity. So desalination is one of the most expensive ways to procure water as of now. So it kind of is the last choice, as I've been told, right, for water managers working in the field of water if other choices are available. But the Gulf has absolute water scarcity. So there really aren't, at least as of now, other solutions. Although I think sometimes this kind of like, you know, that, that, that there's been a foreclosing of the exploration of other solutions that's happened through a reliance on desalination. But anyway, so the first reason, again, as I said, is because of the region's absolute water scarcity. And then the second reason, reason is because of the region's extensive oil and gas reserves. So desalination is quite energy intensive. And then we see desalination really being uptaken in like taken up in a region where not only is there water scarcity, but there's also energy abundance and not being taken up in places where those conditions don't exist. So it's quite important to just keep in mind that in the UAE and in Dubai, like water scarcity is absolute. It's not an issue or natural water scarcity, at least, is not an issue that's caused by climate change. It's, it's exacerbated by them. And the turn to desalination, which is a non-conventional water resource, really happened early on. There are three different technologies mainly that exists for today in desalination. And these are um, two thermal processes, which are, they're called MSF and MED. I won't get into them. And then there's reverse osmosis, which is a membrane process. So thermal processes basically use steam to boil salty water. And that process like ends up leaving the salts behind, you know, getting the fresh water to be in the form of water vapor. That water vapor is then condensed to produce fresh water. So this is, of course, like a very simplified picture of how this works. Reverse osmosis uses membranes. Salty water is pushed through these membranes at high pressure to separate salts and water. So thermal processes were super popular until maybe the last decade or two. RO, though, has increased in efficiency over time, and it's now become kind of like the holy grail in the field. And there are multiple factors that explain this historical development, which is not as from a technological perspective as it would be seen from a technological perspective, which is a natural progression towards a naturally superior technology, right? And I think there's a couple of, you know, like 
um, contingent uh, or explanations behind this. Uh, the first relates to how Gulf countries produce their power. So Gulf countries um, produce their power by burning fossil fuels, mainly natural gas, as is the case in Dubai. And then this pro process produces a byproduct heat that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about free water, right? And that's then used as an input for thermal desalination. So electricity and water generation or production are, are coupled. And we can see really how the nature of power generation ends up driving the preferred method of thermal desalination somehow. And then, you know, the Gulf being a major player ends up shaping the nature of research within that field or the nature of the technology more broadly. And another factor that kind of starts to explain the tipping and balance between RO and MSF is the energy crises of the 1970s um, and the elevated prices of fossil fuels that end up, you know, producing a quest to kind of increase the efficiency of desalination processes and that end up improving RO. But even as RO was improved, um, there's a lag in when it's taken up in the Gulf. And that's in part because of this coupling and these legacy infrastructures that emerged from coupling. And in part because the Arabian Gulf is super salty. It is a, it, the Arabian Gulf is the body of seawater that most countries in the Gulf rely on uh, for desalination. And it's super salty for various uh, natural and human made reasons. And this creates a challenge for RO because unlike MSF where you can kind of boil water and there's no limit as to how salty you know, the water can be, you can kind of, you just need more energy to kind of separate more salts, right? Like with RO, actually the membranes can only handle up to a certain amount of salinity. And so RO is not necessarily, even though it's much more efficient, it's not necessarily the ideal technology for the Gulf region. And so there's a hesitance and lag you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, even in 2000s to kind of move towards this technology. But a shift happens once again, much more recently. And now there's a, an almost total dedication to RO in the Gulf. And that's again explained by a drive by energy. I think it's so like the water energy nexus, as it's talked about, where this interrelationship between water and energy is so significant in general when we talk about water and particularly in places like the Arabian Gulf. And we see it in this kind of, you know, like this twin development in energy, I think driving so much of the developments when it comes to water and in, you know, water concerns being very much energy concerns in the Gulf. And so what happens more recently and what explains this shift, I think, towards RO is that there is this kind of commitment to diversify energy sources and develop, uh, you know, renewable projects. So Dubai, for example, wants by 2050 to have 75% of its energy come from clean energy. So that logic of coupling um, no longer seems to hold and it no longer seems to make sense, right? So there is this kind of commitment, as I said, to building basically just RO from now on. Really briefly, like when you're when they're coupled, then water and electricity have to be produced in the same amounts. And there's, you know, a lot of flux and demand between water and energy versus um, sorry, there's a lot of flux between energy demand in the summer and winter because of cooling. And that flux doesn't necessarily take place within water. And so you end up having like all kinds of inefficiencies that aren't necessarily talked about in this idea of you know free water. So basically, like Dubai just really briefly started relying on desalination in 1979. 
And it was a moment in which it was kind of being repositioned globally as an economic player through projects like the Jabal Ali port that would eventually make Dubai into the, you know, like international, you know, like global trade city it is today. And until recently, um, it, all of its desalination was thermal. The first RO plant actually opened this year, and there's another one that's about three times the size that's in the work. Just to give you some numbers, um, to give you a sense of like what, how much water is being produced. Uh, right now, Dubai has the capacity of 470 million gallons a day, but there's a plan to increase that capacity. So there's a kind of doubling down on desalination and uh, taking for granted that its sustainability issues will eventually be solved, right? Um, there's a plan to increase the desalination of capacity of Dubai to around 700 million gallons a day and um, to have nearly half of that desalinated water supply come from RO and to connect a lot of these you know new projects and also some of these older MSF plants to large solar developments like the really famous Mohammed bin Rashid and Maktoum solar park. So if I were maybe to say one last thing about desalination that's significant in terms of the larger study I think so desalination is what's known as a non-conventional water resource. And conventional water resources are like groundwater and surface water, like rivers, lakes, right? And these are super sensitive to fluctuations in precipitation that are expected to accompany climate change. And one thing we do know for sure is that rain is going to change. We don't know in what way. So like actually climate models for the UAE like range really widely from 10% less rain to 20 I think it's, yeah, 10% less rain to 20% more rain by 2050. But what we know as well is it's not just the amounts that it's going to come in, but we expect that there's going to be longer periods of droughts, that the rain that's going to come is going to come in a few very intense storms. These are things we're already seeing in a lot of places, right? And so conventional water resources have a huge set of problems when it comes to climate change that non-conventional water resources like desalination and recycled wastewater don't have. And I think that there is, I think we will in general be seeing a lot more desalination going forward in addition to a lot more wastewater recycling. And that's precisely because of this, this reliability, right, that's built into these forms of water production that are not necessarily the case for conventional water resources. Even if we recognize that even then, like obviously even desalination has climate change related issues. So remember I said, you know, like it functions like a factory and we need to be able to predict demand. Well, there's gonna be like havoc wreaked on demand by, you know, new climate conditions potentially that are not necessarily so predictable. Okay, maybe they're more predictable than effects on supply, but um, there's potentially significant changes within demand so yeah, it, they, it's not that they, they don't necessarily have their own sets of problems when it comes to climate change, but I think they're definitely thought about as being more reliable. And I think that that definitely is part of the reason why there's, you know, in addition to other reasons, like no other options right now, like there's a doubling down on desalination in Dubai. You are listening to the Environment in Context series on Status Al-Wada. This is Huma Gupta. My guest host today is Daniel Saleh, who is joining us from Doha. And we are speaking with Nadia Christidi about water and climate change in Dubai. 
So Nadia, when we ran into each other at the Al Sadr Environmental Film Festival in Abu Dhabi this past February, uh, right before we watched that heartbreaking documentary Albatross, which I'm I'm still emotionally <laughs> recovering from, you you told me something that I wasn't aware of that in 2016 the Emirates had established a dedicated Ministry of Climate Change and Environment. In some ways, the establishment of this ministry, the Dubai Supreme Council of Energy, the Sustainability and Climate Change Team at Dubai Electricity and Water Authority, and the work of Dubai Municipality, I mean, to me, that they indicate that there's a heavy government investment in developing policies for climate change adaptation and mitigation, that this is really a broad-based portfolio of activities, while desalination is at the center of, but there is a kind of broader vision that is trying to be enacted here. But in doing your research, I'm really interested in who your ethnographic subjects are and how they are positioned vis-a-vis these power structures and within these institutions, uh, not only in these ministries, but also in their position in the state, in the university, in, you know, respect to colonial regimes and corporations. Can you talk to us about your experience of doing fieldwork in Dubai and what have you learned so far? Uh, so just a couple of like comments maybe to begin with on the kind of on this, you know, intensification of activity, as you mentioned, of, you know, work within the fields of sustainability, you know, climate change, etc. I think there's definitely been like a more kind of recent, maybe like since the late 2000s, early 2010s shift towards this. I think in the beginning, it was very much dominated by mitigation. Um, there is more of, I think, an attempt to focus now on adaptation. We can see that, for example, with, as you mentioned, you know, the establishment of the Ministry of Climate Change and the Environment, where the kind of, you know, climate change portfolio goes from before that having been within, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, right, where it's thought about as this kind of, you know, foreign policy negotiation, mitigation question, to the Ministry of Climate Change and the Environment, which then, you know, like besides doing negotiations and thinking about climate change in terms of foreign policy, then, you know, takes this up more seriously as a kind of, you know, local management issue. And I think, you know, the same thing with kind of the establishment of, you know, the sustainability and climate change team at DIWA or the, the Water and Electricity Authority, like they also begin very much focused on mitigation, shifting to adaptation. I still do think like a lot of the conversation is focused on mitigation and that's because of the importance of of energy and all of this uh, but just yes in general there is this intensification of activity i think in general this relates to this shift towards renewables right and this commitment to shift towards renewables i think you know this is uh, explained by a much longer history of a concern for economic diversification and planning for the future of post oil that begins in the 1970s but that this is kind of it's more most recent manifestation. So a lot of the people that I talked to were actually people that worked in many of the institutions that you kind of named right now. So I spent basically five months in Dubai um, in 2019 and early 2020 before the world completely changed, meeting in person with stakeholders from the fields of water and urban planning. And so I talked to people in you know the Dubai municipality that were working on recycled water, people in the Dubai municipality working on wastewater management, uh, sorry, on stormwater capture, stormwater, sorry, management. And then, you know, like people at 
the Debrett Electricity and Water Authority in planning, in their planning department and in the climate change department, you know, like um, the demand side manager from the demand side management team of um, the Dubai Supreme Council of Energy, which actually sets the strategies for how to manage demand in both the fields of water and energy for Dubai. So I'd say most of my conversations were with governmental actors. Some of it was with academics at universities who were doing research on questions related to, you know, like groundwater, hydrogeology, etc. And then in that process of trying to get interviews, I sometimes found it quite challenging to access information about water, which is generally thought about as the kind of very strategic issue somehow, but also just in general, I had a hard time with access at times uh, into institutions. And so I ended up supplementing some of my conversations that I would have liked to have, you know, with the, some of the few conversations, you know, some of the conversations that I had with public sector actors and you know, like replacing other conversations that I would have liked to have with private sector actors that were working, you know, with the public sector on projects for them. Obviously, they're sometimes bound by like non-disclosure agreements too. So there's limits to what I could find out. But it was one of the ways in which I kind of had to go about things obliquely because of the nature of research conditions. Um, Other things I did was uh, I did participant observation, which is, you know, the anthropological term for basically like sitting around and watching things and listening to things. So I did participant observation at big um, like sustainable technology trade shows and conferences. I spent a lot of times just like time going to different parts of the city and just observing what I could from the infrastructure. Uh, And, you know, and I tried to be creative. Like I actually went and presented my research to the R&D or research and development team at the Water Authority in order to kind of like introduce them to who I was, but also, you know, like kind of finish my presentation with an opportunity for me to like meet people, right, to, to get an in into the institution, to kind of ask the questions, you know, that I wanted to ask, you know, in this platform or opening that I might not have had otherwise. So I did have to kind of go about some of this in oblique ways. And I think it got me thinking a lot about methodology in general, like um, what does participant observation mean when you're working, you know, like, you know, within kind of policy circles in spaces that are not necessarily, you know, that are not necessarily, um, I don't know, like public domain or fully transparent to the general public. How do you do research on questions like this in contexts like Dubai where information can be hard to get at? So I think like I've covered a lot of some of the things that I've learned, but I'd say like I thought I'd maybe give a general picture of how water works in Dubai uh, for those who might be interested. Um, So water is actually like it's a natural resource. So it's even if it's actually like non-naturally or artificially produced. So it's considered a natural resource. And so it's um, according to the constitution in the UAE, it's kind of managed at the Emirates level. And this is in part the case because like organizations like the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority, which was previously the Dubai Water Company, actually existed before unification in 1971. And it was also because, as I've read in some places, like from newspaper articles at the time, like there was a worry that resource wealthy emirates like Abu Dhabi, for example, would come to dominate policy if things like this would be shared. So just in general, like from my understanding or from what I've established, like somebody told me something that I found quite striking, which is that actually uh, strategies are a super important part or way, you know, part of the way that Dubai functions as a city. 
Um, and so there's all kinds of strategies like the Dubai Clean Energy Strategy of 2050, the Dubai Demand Management Side, Demand Side Strategy of 2030, the Dubai Carbon Abatement Strategy of 2021. These are all just a few examples. Um, all of these strategies are kind of produced at higher levels and then you know, they set the directions for institutions like the Dubai Electricity and Water Authority and the Dubai Municipality to then execute them. The Dubai Electricity and Water Authority is government owned and operated and it's responsible for desalination, which is mainly like basically used for residences for, you know, by commercial companies and, you know, by industrial users. And then you have the Dubai municipality, which is responsible for managing groundwater sources, which is mainly used for irrigation, for farms, some private gardens, and some very distant areas that aren't connected to the desalinated water network. Although I was told these are very, very few. Recycled water is actually a big part of the picture of, recycled wastewater is actually a big part of the picture of uh, water in Dubai. And it's managed by the Dubai municipality along with storm man water management as well. So the Dubai municipality manages groundwater, stormwater, and recycled wastewater. And um, actually recycled wastewater has been used for a long time for large scale public landscaping projects like parks, golf courses and highway medians. And it's interesting because these are often, you know, like critiqued, you know, within this kind of environmental imaginary framework as, you know, like, oh, this greening of the desert and, you know, the excess of water that's used for them. But for a long while and increasingly so, these projects are becoming watered by recycled wastewater. Granted, recycled wastewater could be used for other purposes. Although there are some, you know, questions about, about the possibility of that happening. Like recycled wastewater could, in theory, as it is in, you know, being planned in some places like LA, be converted into potable water. Like we could drink, you know, eventually recycled wastewater, but that's not being considered in Dubai for various reasons, including, as I was told, religious ones. I don't know. But in all cases, basically recycled water is used to irrigate these um, you know, these green, these big public green spaces. And then there's a massive infrastructure, like a huge deep stormwater tunnel that's actually being built to drain a considerable part of the city from stormwater and excess groundwater, which is becoming increasingly a problem because of, you know, the flash floods that I mentioned and also the high water table in Dubai. Um, it's kind of perplexing to me because it seems so strange in a place with so much water scarcity to kind of flush this water out, right? instead of trying to capture it and use it. But when I've talked to water managers about that, they say, you know, like it doesn't really make sense to build an infrastructure that's only, you know, that's massive, that's only used for, you know, like maybe two or three days a year. And the same complaint was made about stormwater capture projects in somewhere like LA. That's kind of the desalinated water, wastewater or recycled wastewater, stormwater capture and groundwater picture. And uh, in general, Dubai relies on desalination, basically. Um, this reliance, uh, as I mentioned, like it's gonna continue into the future or that's what's planned. And there's a plan to try to switch to renewables as a source of power. Groundwater since 2008 is kind of, you know, thought of as just an emergency reserve for the future. Um, although there's definitely some illegal and unregulated use as there is in lots of other places. And um, and then, you know, storage, which is, I think, like a big part of the future of water in general that I find especially interesting is being amped up. So Dubai currently has only around 2.7 days worth of um, peak storage demand in its system. And like if 
something were to happen to completely shut down the whole system, this is actually only 2.7 days worth of water of like peak demand um, as a backup. So they're working right now on doing a project that's similar to uh, one that was done in Abu Dhabi, where actually like, ex, you know, like desalinated water, extra desalinated water is being produced and then pumped into groundwater aquifers through a process known as artificial storage and recharge. Um, because this way of storing water is like, you can store a lot more water than, you know, concrete reservoirs, which is what's used now. And it's much cheaper. Um, so there, you know, like, I think it's going to extend, I don't remember the exact figures, but it's like a create, it's an extension of many, many times of the current storage capacity. Yeah. So that's kind of a big overview of the picture of water. I'm not sure if you have any questions or if anything was unclear. And then I'd say, you know, like going back to that question of kind of ethnography and, you know, what some of these conversations lets me see that, you know, maybe you know, in terms of thinking about my findings and stuff like that from this research methodology, I'd say like something that was unexpected was, you know, I'd read about like centralization, right, as being this like really significant feature of Dubai's governance structure, right, and that's kind of what I went in expecting, and it is the case to some extent, but then through, you know, like ethnographic research or like, you know, an anthropological perspective and through some of these methodologies that I had to develop, like talking to private sector you know, workers, what I ended up finding out was actually like Dubai developed in this very piecemeal way. Like there are massive developments, right, built by big developers that are almost cities in their own right. And sometimes the infrastructure of the city can't actually get to these developments in time. So they develop their own infrastructures in the meantime. Like there's actually like something like over 90 private sewage treatment plants in these developments that are online right now. Um, you know, as these developments await the extension of the infrastructure to them. So I think like, you know, it was, and I, I don't think I really found that out until I talked to, you know, like a private developer that, you know, in within the private sector who had kind of developed that, you know, had a, had a private sewage treatment plant on their development. And then, you know, that ended up resurfacing in conversations with the public sector after that. But that was definitely something that I think I may not have arrived at had I not, you know, gone down this more, you know, maybe like social science humanities approach. Thank you, um, Nadia. So earlier you were talking about these two imaginaries that really got me thinking. They're related to the energy water nexus you you're, you've been talking about. So like on the one hand, the, the factory where. Um, because the, there's this imaginary that water is produced rather than sourced from somewhere where it's sourced, it's sourced from the Gulf, but the idea is that it's, it's pr produced and it's artificial. So therefore it's closer to electricity. Therefore it's commodifiable in different, in kind of unique ways from conventional sources. And then on the other hand, there's the imaginary of like infinite water. So because of this energy water nexus, water, the, the idea is that water is produced it's like this byproduct of waste heat for power generation and therefore it's free it should be free so i'm interested just to hear a bit more about how ideas of market environmentalism are shaping planning approaches to water management in dubai or in the broader uae uh, thank you daniel that's a really great question and kind of a hard one to answer at times like i do think i mean so, so one thing to clarify about the free is like that it's, um, you know, it's pictured as being uh, free in the sense of like 
uh, makes sense in terms of the energy, you know, like in terms of the energy input. I think more so than necessarily it, it clashing with the kind of more factory, I guess, sense that, uh, you know, I was also told about. Um, so that's just one clarification. And then I guess, you know, there's, there's many ways in which I think like market environmentalism um, and the market more generally like factor into governance in um, Dubai and, you know, in renewables, in the space of renewables, in the space of water, I'd say, you know, like, I mean, besides that kind of, you know, water as commodity that you mentioned and, you know, besides it's kind of, you know, like Dubai's attempt to kind of position itself as a sustainable city, city source to attract talent, investment, et cetera, that I kind of referred to, you know, in what I said before I, and, and kind of, you know, like how that ends up producing this emphasis on innovation, right? Um, uh, and this kind of, in, you know, penetration of, Dubai by an innovation economy, uh, Dubai's water field by a kind of like innovation, um, it's penetration by an innovation um, culture and an innovation economy. I think those are some things we kind of maybe touched on earlier. You know, I think just generally, like I was quite struck actually by uh, the way that Dubai kind of functions. Like, I don't know if this makes sense, but for me, like one of the things I really was struck by was, you know, this annual reports, KPIs, you know, this emphasis on transparency that oftentimes, you know, came across as a very corporate style of governance. You know, there's also like competitions, uh, competition between, you know, the different governmental entities and even within like something like the Dubai municipality between departments, right? And this, there's this belief that the competition is going to drive, you know, better results greater efficiency. And so there's a constant publishing of numbers, targets, you know, percentages. And I think like that, I think is very much a product of some of that kind of, you know, market influence on governance. And then I'd say like, probably, I mean, if I want to talk about, you know, like the market and the role of market and market environmentalism beyond that, like maybe um, a couple of things that could be interesting, for example, is like, a, there's a recent you know, turn to the privatization of water assets and their management. Um, so in 2010, an entity called the Regulatory and Supervisory Bureau was set up in Dubai, and its job is to kind of regulate private contractors in the fields of water and energy and to oversee private-public partnerships, which before that, there was not really any institution that kind of did that. Um, and the Dubai and Electricity Water Authority and Water Authority actually like, has issued its first ever public-private partnership tender um, for the uh, for a massive RO plant just over the last few years. I think like this move towards privatization in general is part of a broader move within the water field. And I think it's part of a, or, or a product of a certain market logic that views public-private partnerships as being more efficient, more co cost-effective, and therefore like more conducive of greater innovation because more money can get and, you know, invested in research and development. I think, you know, like I remember this was definitely like something I went to the uh, World Desalination Congress um, of the International Desalination Association. And I remember very clearly that I actually heard like the CEO of the, Sing the Singapore's utility talk about this, right? Like talk about utilities as businesses that need to function more or less like economically soundly so that they can invest in research and development and, and that being not necessarily the way in which utilities have often been structured 
um, where they're often, you know, thought about as because water is often, sorry, thought about as this common or as this right, like the utilities are kind of one of the last, I think water utilities in particular are one of the last kind of standouts to the big privatization push of neoliberalism. And that's not the case everywhere. There's definitely private utilities, but I think there is this kind of um, resistance or pushback on privatization. And I think that some of that is changing uh, or some of that maybe tension is, and some of maybe some changes happening right now, you know, are kind of captured in that kind of emphasis on, you know, the innovation potential that seems to reside within privatization and the efficiencies and profitabilities that that produces. And then I'd say like the second way that, you know, market environmentalism kind of really, really manifests very strongly also once again across you know, the whole sector of water right now is in a very big conversation on the question of the pricing of water and tariffs. So there's some people that argue that water needs to be priced in a way that's more reflective of its cost. Like water has been subsidized for a long time. It costs a lot more than what consumers are paying for it, right? And then again, there's that pushback from the people that say, no, no, water is a right necessity for life it can't be commoditized right it needs to be subsidized or you know like it needs to be it's a right that should be provided or you know at least it should be subsidized and so there is opposition to this question of removing subsidies and again uh, i think like some of the ways in which this conversation then ends up you know going in is kind of this idea that actually you know one of the arguments pro uh, you know, like removing subsidies or charging, you know, like certain rates is this question of, well, if we charge consumers, you know, what water actually costs, then they're going to end up using less. Like consumers use more now because water is cheap. And if we price water at a greater level or like a higher price, then they're going to naturally, because they think economically, right, and somehow solely economically, they're going to naturally kind of not use as much water. There, there are these two perspectives definitely came up in different conversations I had. You know, in one conversation, it was with uh, someone from the you know climate change and sustainability team at the Water Authority, and then in the other, it was with someone from the um, you know demand demand side management team at the Dubai Supreme Council of Energy. And the Dubai Supreme Council of Energy sets the demand side management strategy, and there, you know, like. For the person I spoke to, uh, tariffs were a huge part. They were like the second main way in which Dubai was going to achieve the water savings it was setting out to achieve, right? And then when I talked to that person at you know the Water Authority, there was you know that person was a little bit more skeptical, kind of of the effectiveness of tariffs generally, right, to produce water savings because you know they mentioned that you know water tariffs work really well in the short term, but then consumers end up kind of readjusting, you know, like in the beginning, I guess there's a shock, right? And then you end up readjusting to these prices and fall back into your old consumption habits. I think some of these conversations around the market as a disciplining force are super interesting and very important, you know, right now. And just more broadly, some of these questions about, you know, what I think this, this whole debate around water as a right versus water as a commodity, um, you know, the pricing of water and what it should be. I think it's one of the biggest debates right now in the field of water management. And it's so important and also kind of so scary. Thank you, Nadia. I, again, this has been such a kind of 
far-reaching conversation. And uh, we started with this kind of very broad question of that ecological imaginaries, you know, in the Emirates, but, you know, broadly um, around the world, the ways in which kind of water and climate change are thought about. And now, you know, we're at a place where we're talking about market environmentalism and we're talking about the particular calculative frameworks of how value is assigned and how pricing, you know, happens within these imaginaries or in relation to these imaginaries. So I think that, you know, it's important also to perhaps take a step back. And when we're considering, you know, how and why a price can be assigned to commodity if we think of water as a commodity, if we can assign a price to it, which is, I mean, of course, a question that has been asked since the Scottish Enlightenment. So it, it's a huge question. But there's also, you know, another set of calculative frameworks that are being imposed on, you know, countries around the world in terms of what is an appropriate level of water consumption per household, per capita, you know, um, in terms of a, a country's size. And I think the UAE, of course, stands out as having a high level of water consumption and is often criticized for this. But I was wondering if you could, you know, really talk to us about the international calculative frameworks that are used to evaluate water consumption and, you know, how they were developed and what are the limitations of these frameworks? How do we even begin to understand how to judge levels of water consumption and how that relates eventually to, you know, this battle between water as a human right and water as a commodity. So this is, I guess, where my uh, science and technology studies background kicks in. And I think, oh my God, numbers are so tricky. So we have to think like, what are some of these standards referring to, right? Like, uh, so first of all, yes, definitely. Like it's talked about, I think, you know, UAE consumption is significantly higher. It's often used in an admonishing way, you know, like it's, I think, so I, I think I was just recently listening to one of my interviews again, and it was something like in the UAE, it's within the range of 500 something liters a day, whereas in some places in Europe, it's within the 300s, right, or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember the numbers, but in any case, it's often talked about as this like significantly, this grossly high rate. Um, that's, you know, uh, that's, I think, you know, that's, that has criticism built within it, obviously. And I think sometimes can, because of how it, it, because of the perspective that it emerges from, can be a little bit skewed in perspective to put it maybe. So first, like, let's start with the question that I, with the answer that I started off with, which is, you know, these numbers, they're so tricky. What are they referring to? So they're, they're averages of consumption and they include things like industry, agriculture, and domestic consumption. So they're not necessarily always comparable, right? And then I'd say in the UAE, where the numbers are excessively high, is specifically when it comes to anything that's outdoors, right? So I was told by a representative from the Ministry of Energy and Industry that consumption in apartments in the UAE is more or less comparable to consumptions in apartments in elsewhere, including Europe. So we have this, you know, like this outdoors factor, right? That's um, that's really, you know, in things like agriculture, that's really driving some of this overconsumption. And um, this brings me to my second point about these numbers and how tricky or, you know, skewed they can be. And that is that, uh, and, and this is actually something that I was told by an official from the Dubai Supreme Council of Energy, who said that, you know, but an environment like, you know, Dubai, in an environment like Dubai, there's much more evaporation, much more transpiration, much more water needed outdoors. 
for more or less the same things that would be required, you know, for more or less, you know, to, to do more or less the same things somewhere else, like in Europe. Um, so, you know, these standards, they're often used to compare locales. Uh, and sometimes this comes, you know, with a kind of, you know, like a, a judgment on performance somehow, right? So they're used to compare these locales without necessarily consideration of all of these factors. And, and I think that, you know, some of the benchmarks that, that are used to measure performance are against, you know, consumptions in, you know, especially within developed countries, like the benchmark would be, you know, European countries or, you know, you know that are in temperate zones, let's say, right? And so there's definitely like a, a kind of skew within that standard, right? Like it really raises the question of what what are standards in general and what do they do, right? Like, I mean, I think we take standards for, for granted a lot, but when we step back and we realize, you know, that there's different types of environments that require different amounts of water, then that really starts to complicate what we take for granted, which is that we can establish a standard and then, you know, assess performance based on that. And I think, you know, I don't actually know the specifics of how these standards, you know, become kind of established or, or when they come out and, you know, like how they're used. And maybe there are some, you know, attempts within statistics or within more specialized studies that attempt to kind of take into consideration some of these factors that I've just mentioned that complicate this question. But I'm referring more to the way that they're used within, you know, general public debate, discourse, the media, et cetera, uh, where these things aren't taken into consideration. So yeah, I don't know how they kind of come about, but I think like with many things, you know, there are internal biases. I think like, you know, the benchmark of kind of Europe points to some of these ways, you know, some points to how these standards develop potentially like other standards that take Europe as the benchmark as well. And, you know, and like I've said, like some of these, as we mentioned, have inherent biases and inequalities. I think there's a scholar who I find really helpful in thinking through these, um, these questions. And, you know, he's Walter, he's a theorist, Walter Mignolo. Walter Mignolo um, calls, you know, these standards that appear to be objective, the product, he calls them the product of the zero point of hubris, right? And he says that they're kind of, and it's knowledge um, for which the kind of the geolocation of that knowledge or the body, you know, the body location of that knowledge, so like where it's produced and who it's produced by becomes obscured in this attempt to position it as universal, right? And, and, and that's, again, what he's referring to in this idea of the zero point and of hubris. But all knowledge comes out of somewhere and has some assumptions built into it, which is what he's pointing to. I don't think that that answer necessarily precludes the fact that maybe there is like maybe there is some truth to an overconsumption, right? And that's because of a particular management of the environment or style of way approach to managing the environment or what may be. But I think that just to use these standards can sometimes, you know, simplify a picture that I think is much more complex. Thank you so much, Nadia. I mean, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I think I'm really grateful that you've chosen to speak to us in this moment when, you know, you just freshly have come back from field work in, in Dubai and that you are, you know, still in the process of theorizing and uh, historicizing and writing about um, this work, but you're kind of giving us a snapshot of your current thinking and what you're observing from your field work. And I mean, it's just been such a rich and I think 
theoretically provocative conversation and has really brought some nuance into the question of how, you know, water and climate change are being addressed um, without, you know, a perspective of kind of like condescension <laughs> towards, you know, the United Arab Emirates, um, but also understanding that things are extremely complicated and fraught sometimes. And there are, of course, blind spots, but there is a there's a sort of empathetic view in your your treatment of your ethnographic subjects and these institutions and how they're trying to approach um, these questions, which I think we all can perhaps learn from and help us understand and kind of translate an anthropological perspective on water and climate change to um, other environments and other countries. So thank you so much. Uh, I also want to especially thank my guest host today, Daniel Saleh. She's has helped frame and shape this conversation in such a tremendous way. Nadia Christidi, uh, of course, is a PhD candidate at MIT, and we were speaking with her today in Beirut. If you'd like to learn more, keep an eye out for Nadia's research, uh, which will be published by Art Jamil in Dubai this fall. We also welcome your ideas. If you have ideas about programming or you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environment at Thank you for listening and until next time.